The soldiers go from train to train. Out! Out! They scream. They drive the helpless, terrified civilians on foot to the collection depot across the town through glistening snow. On the way, they start selecting the girls they want to spend a hot five minutes with in a doorway or any corner that comes handy. A limping officer from supply picks his way among the corpses, choosing stuff to send home. Probing with his stick, he picks a scarf, a ring, some cloth, shoes. They go in a trunk and are sent miles and miles to some small Russian village. There, the barefoot children wear dead men's shoes. The women parade in their corpses jewelry from the poem Prussian Nights by Alexander Solzhenitsyn Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf and today we're crab walking right back in the inferno with part 2 of our definitive series on the Battle of Berlin. This is part two of an ongoing series, so if you haven't heard the first episode, you might want to check it out. But if you're flying down the road and can't change the podcast right now, we're glad you're here. But before we can get into the battle, I've got to thank Will from Philadelphia, Nate from Cheyenne, and Jim from Parts Unknown for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that make a donation button. But now, waste, pain, rape, blood, Sickness, will-numbing thoughts, towns destroyed, suicide, knife slipping across wrist, wanton scenes of sexual excess, millions of people mole-like living in underground train stations for weeks, women getting firebombed for daring to run to water pumps, men giving their great-grandfather's gold watch away for a loaf of bread, priceless works of art curling and fragmenting in orange flames, dismemberment, widows worried about their over-eager sons, 14-year-olds in Bill ill-fitting uniforms getting crushed by machines, by concrete, by dead bodies, and digging themselves out to fight on. Hate, bitterest hate, cruel hate, running unchecked like a wild mistreated dog whose evil master sets it free. I sing of death, I sing of hate, I sing of the Battle of Berlin. John Tolan masterfully sets the stage of today's show in his book, The Second World War, so I'll just quote him, quote, Hitler's decision not to leave Berlin ensured that the last great siege of the war, shorter than Leningrad's, but even more intense than Stalingrad's, would be Berlin's. And Berlin was a stout place for a last stand. It was unique among German cities in being large, modern, and planned. A complex of 19th and 20th century apartment blocks standing on strong and deep cellars and with wide avenues which served as effective fire breaks. The city had lost about 25% of its built-up area during Allied bombing raids over the previous years. The ruins left behind were as formidable military obstacles as the buildings left standing end. Quote, but Hitler's empire was nonetheless constantly shrinking. Cornelius Ryan provides this excellent summary of the German military position on April 17th. Quote, Almost nothing of the once mighty Third Reich remained. Crushed from both sides, on the map it resembled an hourglass. The North Sea and the Baltic formed the top, and Bavaria, parts of Czechoslovakia, Austria, and northern Italy, which Germany now occupied, made up the lower half. 
Across the narrow neck between these areas, only about 90 miles separated the Americans and the Russians, end quote. This death beehive was the target of two massive, well-equipped Soviet armies. On April 16th, the great attack came, and Zhukov, like a Georgia bulldog lineman, attacked straight down the center of the Nazi lines at a place called the Zilau Heights. It was a bloodbath, and the Germans inflicted way more casualties than they received. However, the second Soviet army, led by General Konyev, made better progress. This took place in the south. On April 17th, while Stalin breathed down both Konyev and Zhukov's throat, both armies resumed the bloody fighting. So you can get a picture of the combat. Konyev is attacking on a line south of Berlin, while Zhukov is attacking straight at Berlin. An additional Russian force is going to attack on a line fairly north of Berlin a few days later, and you can imagine the lack of resistance this third fresh Russian force will receive from the exhausted Germans. But right now, on April 17th, to make a long story short, Zhukov will once again attack into the teeth of Germany's well-laid-out and expertly crafted defenses. While Konyev's two tank army groups will make better progress in the south, with infantry pouring in behind the gaps, the tank groups tear into the German lines. On the morning of the 17th, Zhukov sent his ground attack aircraft swooping down on the remaining German positions on the Zilau Heights. At the same time, groves of trees, villages, and farmhouses still burned from the fight the day before, which I described in the previous month's show. Russian artillery ran up and down the hills, raking them with fire, sending geysers of soil erupting into the sky. Any building still standing was deliberately targeted by the artillery. They joined the chorus of erupting geysers. The smell of burning human and animal flesh filled the area, suffusing the nostrils with a bitter warning of the fate awaiting the defenders who still clung, barnacle-like, to the Zilau Heights. Behind the lines, German field police set up roadblocks, constantly on the lookout for stragglers or deserters. These deserters were simply lumped together with the other unfortunates caught that day by the field police and sent right back into the front lines. As a consequence, hardened veterans could end up manning a defensive position next to fanatical Hitler youth and trembling paper pushers. Truth to be told, the veterans worked wonders for the lesser-trained men around them, passing on tricks and guidance that prolonged the agony and maybe saved a few German lives, while claiming a few more Russian lives. For the first few hours of April 17th, the Zhukov's tanks made little progress in the Rubik's Cube of pain called the Zilau Heights. Expert anti-tank men almost melted the barrels of their 88mm guns, puncturing the metal exoskeletons of the oncoming masses of Soviet armor, suicidally careening directly into their positions. It was like playing the old Nintendo game Duck Hunt with cannons, only the ducks fly directly at you and could shoot back at you. What the artillery men didn't take out, fanatical Hitler Youth tank hunting teams, their numbers sometimes boosted with equally fanatical SS adults armed with Panzerfaust anti-tank rockets worked death into the Russian armor from every bush and foxhole. They literally popped up out of the ground like whack-a-moles, sending their fizzing rockets into their targets and turning the men inside into chunky marinara. The Soviet machine gunners shot at everything that moved, working their mounted machine guns, swiveling in manic circles in a desperate search for targets. Eventually, as men in prolonged combat often do, the Russians found a way to protect their armor from the Panzerfaust. 
They raided nearby German homes and commandeered mattresses. They then tied the mattresses to the side of their tanks. These thick mattresses caused the warhead on the Panzerfaust to explode before it touched the metal of the tank, thereby reducing the impact and effectiveness of the weapon. Many Hitler youth would be ventilated with rifle fire after heroically popping out from a foxhole to take out a tank only to find their round failed to penetrate the mattress-protected metal skin of their target. And then, an inevitable stream of lasering bullets walked into the youth, sending their bodies flopping like fish dropped on the shore of a South Georgia pond. By midday, Soviet tanks had finally surrounded the Zilau Heights, but resistance on the hill still continued. And the Soviet effort itself was hampered by their own artillerymen who kept firing on their own men's positions. It was a nightmare. On the northern front of Zhukov's attack, his men were battering back the German defenders. The Axis men on the front line were mostly trainees and officer candidates who were hastily gathered together into a new army corps and shoved into the front line. The veterans of the Soviet 3rd Shock Army crowbarred them out of their strong points man by man. The fight was simply continuous. One German regiment had only 34 boys still standing at the end of the day. Imagine a giant cemetery suddenly regurgitating all the bodies within its graves. That's what the field behind the front line resembled at the end of April 17th. But worse, because all the bodies were fresh. Further down the front line, Soviet troops prepared to cross the Oder River in the teeth of heavy German resistance. As the Russians were just about to run to their boats, German illumination flares temporarily lit up the darkness. Then German artillery started stomping across the opposite Soviet-held bank. Many of the men avoided the German shells, but their boats did not. As a result, a large number of the craft were pierced by shrapnel. Then the flares went out, and the darkness flooded the Russians' vision. Flailing in the pitch blackness like Paul struck on the road to Damascus, they tried to insulate the holes they found by touch, going so far as to cut pieces from their own jackets and stuff them into the cracks their fingers felt. One Soviet company commander was at the boats and getting ready to cross right before dawn. This is how he describes the crossing in subsequent battle. Quote, we had already lost several men killed and wounded when the order to prepare the small fishing boats for launching came right before dawn. Our artillery began hammering the Germans at 5.30 a.m. before the sun had even come up. Soon our first boats were in the water. I saw that our boats were moving quite quickly. The German artillery and machine gun fire intensified. Our own guns and machine guns also intensified. We could see tracer and incendiary bullets flying well above our heads. Black cold water seemed to boil up from the explosions, devouring both boats and men that swam next to them. Their clothes were waterlogged. Their legs were pierced by shrapnel or cramps. The men slowly sank, their white faces disappearing with wide eyes beneath the opaque, tremulous water. Some boats were so overloaded that they started to sink under the weight of four men with weapons. Consequently, the men left their weapons in the boats and swam next to them, holding onto the boats and fighting convulsions in their muscles in the ice-cold water, their teeth rattling like an old train on worn-out tracks. No one knows how many drowned in that river. Some of the slow ones were swept away with the current. Some of the men gave up 
and were floating on the surface. Some were face down, already dead. The men still in boats feverishly worked the oars. The water still boiled from explosions and bullets and from the rowing. It looked like a hot tub at an American resort, churning and bubbling with steel-tipped death. My light boat was moving faster than the others, and even before we hit the shore, I ordered my radio men to tell the artillery to shift fire away from the shore. At the same time, I realized we were under well-aimed fire from a German. My radio operator screamed with pain as his shoulder was hit by a bullet. It looked like someone had taken an ice cream scoop and scooped out a piece of his flesh. I myself sensed an explosive bullet hit the upper part of our aluminum boat, and my left wrist was badly scratched by its splinter. Men that were in the boats were firing at the approaching bank. Some even unloaded belts of machine gun fire from the oncoming fishing boats. Then, right in front of my eyes, two boats simply evaporated. When they were struck by direct artillery hits, I heard something fizzing and whistling through the air. It was Panzerfoss. I did not see how many boats were destroyed because my whole perspective shrunk down, and I focused on that opposite bank. I had tunnel vision, and it was like that little narrow strip of German soil was the entire reason for my existence, why I was born. Not my wife, not the motherland, but that dry shore right there. Several boats reached the bank, and men rushed forward, firing some machine guns as they came on. We captured the first yards of the enemy's bank, but how few boats made it, how few men I had left. I only had about 20 men left. When I looked back, I did not see any more boats or men in the water. Only we had made it. About 100 of my men were killed in the water. They never even made it across the river itself. When we jumped out of our boat, I tried to radio back to headquarters that we had made it across, but the radio was damaged, so I used my green pistol flare as a signal. Then, on the left bank, events unfolded with lightning speed. A German shell flew by me, hissing like a snake. I saw groups of men running forward. There was nothing else to do, so I ran after them. Our two small groups pressed on, a Soviet submarine surrounded by a sea of Germans. We ran on and destroyed the German forward soldiers in the first trench, losing several of our men in the process. Men would be running and then suddenly three or four would just collapse, cut down by a line of winking machine gun fire. A German grenadier burst out of the ground like a zombie in an American film, and he aimed a Panzerfaust at us. He let loose, but the projectile missed our group overshot. The German was suddenly a jackrabbit, leaping out of his trench and running for all he was worth. But one of our guys named Schmanoy got him with a burst from his submachine gun. I fired a red flare, and my whistle gave the signal to stop. In the distance, three German tanks began to rattle towards our position. There were only 13 of us left. It was our job to hold this little bridgehead until the reinforcements behind us could come up and drive the Germans back. All of a sudden, one German tank stopped and started to smoke. Schmanoy had found a Panzerfaust and used it on the onrushing tank. Then two more Panzerfaust hit the second tank. First its turret was jammed and then it also caught fire. My men unloaded their weapons on the German infantry that rushed from behind the tanks. Many Germans were killed. The rest turned back. At that moment, my men spontaneously jumped out of the trenches and ran forward. The Germans were fleeing. They understood it was useless to surrender to us. And they were right. Suddenly, a Schmanoy ran past a dead German. The German came to life 
and emptied the entire clip of his MP in Schmanoi's back. I actually saw the line of bullets run geometrically from Schmanoi's left lower back all the way to his right shoulder, little asteroid craters of blood spilling with each bullet's contact. The German was firing until I finished him off with a long burst from my submachine gun. My men pressed on and we captured the second trench. I decided to hold the second trench and send a few of my most heavily wounded men back to the boats. I leaned down to speak into my radio operator's ear when suddenly I sensed, I didn't hear it, I instinctively sensed it, a loud bang at my right ear and I immediately fell into a bottomless black hole. My life did not flash before my eyes. The only thing I thought was, I am killed. As it turned out, I had blocked a bullet with my front temple lobe. I've never been the same since that day. End quote. By this point, the Germans north of Zilau had had enough. By the afternoon, only a few self-propelled assault guns were left to stop the tide of steel waving at them from the Soviet lines. The infantry fought on alone, and the results were predictable. Their artillery had already gone because there was simply no more ammunition. They blew up their own guns and left. Many of the infantry went with them. Discipline was falling apart. More and more Axis officers had to draw their pistols in order to have their orders followed. This was especially true in the scratch units that were thrown together randomly by the field police and whose men did not personally know their officers. That's when the German 9th Air Division collapsed. Most of the airmen were Luftwaffe support personnel who had never seen ground combat and the strain of constant Asymmetrical warfare was too much for them. They folded like a bad poker hand. The Katusha rocket barrages especially unnerved the ill-trained clerks and plumbers brought out to defend the Reich. Officers lost control. By noon, the collapse of the German front line north of Zilau was complete. One 18-year-old was there, huddling in a dugout with a Panzerfaust. Maybe, if he gave all he had and sacrificed his life, he might, if he was lucky, gain his Fuhrer another two minutes of life to scream at his generals in the bunker 45 miles away. This is how John Tolan describes the 18-year-old named Cordes' brush with death on the morning of April 17th. Quote, the drowsy Cortez came to life when he made out dim forms coming up the right side of the highway. He waited for the comforting explosion of big guns behind him, but none came. The roar of oncoming tanks was suddenly deafening. As the sky lightened, he could see hundreds of T-34s covered with infantrymen crawling up both sides of the road. Dust rose in great clouds. Cortez fired two Panzerfoss. Behind, he heard someone shout, Get out of here! There's no more ammo! Adrenaline played a concerto with Cortez's nervous system. His foxhole hadn't seemed like much, but playing chicken with a bunch of T-34 Panzers didn't seem like a better change. The airmen who had fought so well in the dark, were seized with panic. As one, they swarmed out of their foxholes and fled back pell-mell to the top of the ridge. Cordes threw away his carbine, his belt, even his own helmet, as he dashed through the empty village of Zilau. Minutes later, Red Army men stood on top of the ridge and looked west down the open highway to Berlin. Forty-five miles away lay Hitler's bunker, end quote. At this final moment, the Nazis unleashed the last remnants of the Luftwaffe. In the sky above the front line, Soviet and German aircraft danced, staking everything on one last roll of the dice. Many Soviets found death. Almost all the Germans did. 
That's when something new began to happen. Scores of German aircraft began deliberately flying their planes into sensitive Soviet targets, such as bridges on the Oder River. It was European kamikaze. Antony Bivor picks up the story like this, quote, The Luftwaffe appears to have invented its own term for this process, called self-sacrifice mission. The pilots of the Leonidas Squadron, based at Juderbog and commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Heiner Lang, supposedly signed a declaration which ended with these words, I am above all clear that my mission will end in my own death. On the evening of April 16th, there was a farewell dance for the pilots on the base with young women from the Luftwaffe Signals Unit there. The dance ended with a final song. Major General Fuchs, the overall commander, was fighting back his own tears. The next morning, the first of the so-called total missions were flown against 32 overwater and underwater bridges repaired or built by Soviet engineers. End quote. The German kamikazes used whatever aircraft were available. One of the self-sacrifice pilots flying the next day was Ernst Beichel. Bull riding at 460 miles an hour on top of a 500-kilogram bomb. Mikhail Ogilevich was manning a Soviet checkpoint at a town called Zelen when he heard the familiar noise of an aircraft flying low. He stared at the sky and saw nothing. Whatever the aircraft was, it was hugging the ground. Then Mikhail saw a giant silver eagle hurtle out of the tree line at an incredible speed, careening directly towards the bridge. Mikhail didn't even have time to cross himself before Ernst Beichel's tube of death suicidally impacted into the bridge, 500 kilograms of explosives jackhammering the concrete, sending men and vehicles careening through the sky and into the muddy river below. Beichel hadn't felt a thing. His body disintegrated upon impact. The bridge was destroyed, and German officials claimed 16 more were also destroyed by the German kamikaze pilots over the course of three bloody days. 35 pilots and aircraft were lost in these raids. Soon, the German kamikaze program was abandoned, though. Not because there were no more volunteers there were, but because their air base at Juderbog was overrun. In the south, Konyev's massive army group had broken through the second German defense line, and Konyev responded by pouring Soviet tanks through the hole in the Axis defenses. Fighting still raged at the front line, but now huge numbers of Russian vehicles were making their way towards the river Spree. The pine forest around the advancing Russian armor was alive with flames, black smoke obscuring the views of the drivers, but still the tanks drove on. By nightfall, a leading element of Konyev army had reached the river Spree where their enterprising commander tested the depth of the water until he found a place he thought his tanks might be able to cross without a bridge. He sent a tank straight into the river to see what would happen. The water rose above the tracks and was about to flood the men inside but then the water receded and a few moments later the tank was on the other side of the river. The Germans had little heavy guns at this point of their line, just infantry with machine guns. The bullets zinged and pinged off the Russian tanks. Without the penetrative power of rockets or artillery, they might as well have been firing Nerf guns. It was a lesson in futility. 
Now the Russians were across the river spree. Since the Soviets were behind the German lines, there were few infantry to even resist their advance, let alone stop it. On the night of April 17th, Konyev had two tank armies across the river. By the morning of April 18th, Konyev's lead elements were just 50 miles from the German army headquarters in the town of Zessen, located in the southern suburbs of Berlin. For the Germans, April 17th was the start of everything coming apart. Every report was bad. Every countermove Hitler and his officers conceived was thwarted. The horrible odds were getting worse. All day, reports came in that would make a Japanese commander commit Bushido. Reports of men fleeing the front line. Reports of desperately needed German armor running out of gas. Of artillery units running out of ammunition and blowing up their own desperately needed guns. Invaluable anti-tank weapons destroyed by their own men. The clouds in the sky might as well have formed themselves into sickles and hammers because they belonged to the Russians. The men in the field were beginning to run out of food, all while they were expected to resist better equipped and well-motivated Soviets. After April 17th, everyone knew the game was up. Every hour Hitler delayed the end was a crime against humanity, but I've got two more weeks of crime against humanity to describe before this series is over. Men without hope, without food, without proper equipment, interposed their ill-trained and youthful flesh in between Hitler and the war vehicles coming to annihilate him. Every two minutes, a German was being summarily executed for petty crimes. For example, one starving man was executed for taking food from a destroyed supply truck. All over the receding lines of the Reich, rotting dead men hung from lampposts and trees with crude signs saying, I betrayed the German people. In one city, SS men were hanging dozens of soldiers from trees. The signs were the fascist version of a three-dimensional meme. I am a traitor. I was a coward. I am a deserter. Or the perennial fascist favorite, I disobeyed my commander. By the way, I get accused of taking war too lightly sometimes. What I just said is not a joke. As Roger Griffin demonstrates in his numerous books on fascism, fascists take obedience and duty very seriously. For example, one Italian fascist slogan was, If I lead, follow me. If I retreat, shoot me. If I die, avenge me. So I'm not making this stuff up to be funny. At the same time, German refugees desperately fleeing from the pillaging Russians were not spared the SS treatment either. For instance, John Tolan notes when refugee carts blocked traffic, their owners were often dragged out and hung from the nearest tree as a warning to the other criminals. The execution of deserters was so widespread, women and children became inured to it. One female eyewitness saw children playing with dead bodies, swinging one like it was a tetherball. Throughout this battle, the field police roamed the alleys of both Berlin and the surrounding countryside. Any male found deserting or stealing was summarily liquidated. Himmler himself issued this order to his SS warriors, quote, Every male in a house where a white flag appears must be shot. Not a moment must be wasted in executing these measures. By male, I mean everyone aged 14 years and up, end quote. Another general had death placards put on dead bodies with these words, quote, Whoever fights can die. Whoever betrays his fatherland must die. We had to die, end quote. A regiment commander put the situation better than anything I can dream up. He told his subordinate commanders, quote, We have to hold the front at any cost. 
You're responsible. A few soldiers start to run away, then you must shoot them. If you see many soldiers taking off and you can't stop them and the situation is hopeless, then you better shoot yourself, end quote. How's that for a pep talk? And so the bodies of Germans killed by their fellow Germans continuously stacked up by the minute, lives thrown away for a hopeless cause. At dawn on April 18th, Zukov was a man possessed with one goal, the crushing of resistance at his front line at whatever cost. He knew Konyev had broken through the day before and Stalin had given his rival general permission to send his tanks northwards towards Berlin. Zukov was determined to be the man to command the capture of Berlin regardless of the price, and so he issued a draconian order to help goad his haggard men into victory. Many men would die because of this order, slaughtered like cattle, so Zukov could have his fame. One historian describes Zukov's order on April 18th with these words, quote, Zukov's order to his army commanders that morning were uncompromising. They were to reconnoiter their front in person and report back on the exact situation. Artillery was to be moved forward to take on German strong points over open sites. The advance was to be accelerated and continued day and night. Once again, soldiers were to pay with their lives for the mistakes made by a proud commander under pressure from above. After another heavy barrage and bombing raid, Zukov's exhausted armies went back into the attack Early that morning, on the right, the 47th Army attacked Weizen. The 3rd Shock Army pushed up to the Weizen-Zelau Road, but met heavy resistance around Kunersdorf. The 5th Shock Army and 2nd Guards Tank Army managed to push across the road north of Neuhardenburg, but were also halted. Chukov's 8th Guard Army and Katakov's 1st Guards Tank Army, meanwhile, continued to hammer at the town of Zelo itself. Chukov was furious that the neighboring 69th Army on his left had hardly advanced at all. This exposed his flank dangerously, but fortunately for him, all of Bussa's forces were heavily engaged already. In fact, both of of Zukov's extreme flanks had met with little success, but then the breakthrough came suddenly, just behind Zelau on the Reichstrasse, or German Highway 1. At 9.40 a.m., leading enemy armored groups had broken through. They were heading for the western suburbs of Berlin. The infantry were running away. Now the road was wide open, all the way to the Reich capital. For the rest of the morning, the German army commander Bussa saw that his army was being broken apart. Three and a half miles behind Zelau, the Axis launched a counterattack with tanks and infantry. The Soviets countered this thrust by first containing it and then sending a third group around the flanks of the German attackers. Now the Germans suddenly found themselves attacked from behind. All the Russians had to do was squeeze, and the German counterattack was liquidated. Hundreds of men were killed in this process. They fought without mercy. One German soldier had a grenade roll into his foxhole and explode, turning his legs below the knee into wet ground beef. He screamed for help to passing Russians, but they ignored him and let him slowly die, his body choking from hyperventilation and exhaustion, and he was transformed into a victim from Dante's Inferno. Meanwhile, on the front line, the Russians continued to ventilate the German trench works with artillery. One recently drafted German teenager remembered what it was like to suddenly come under Soviet cannon fire. Quote, 
Everything is quiet for hours. Then suddenly all hell breaks loose. We find ourselves lying in an inferno of fire and horror. Fire strikes from heaven and licks the earth, howling around us. I lie there half dead with fear, scratching the earth with my fingernails, ripping at the turf. If only one could sink into the bowels of the earth. All around us fire and dark smoke as earth is plowed up meter by meter. More coming on. Stalin's organs, God have mercy on on us. Have I been lying here for hours or days? The fire has lifted. I cannot believe it. I feel myself all over. Nothing's missing. I'm only covered in dirt and half shattered, but I'm still alive. A horrible silence now reigns. Here and there, someone heaves themselves up. A human being, or is it a ghost? We stand up, unable to believe that we are still alive. Perhaps death would have been more merciful for us. End quote. After these little bombardments, Zhukov sent in waves of Soviet infantry. By this time in the war, Russian commanders were totally callous towards their own losses. I mean totally. They knew they could replace their men, and Stalin wanted results yesterday. Accordingly, the Russians repeatedly sent men into a slaughterhouse of violence, rushing tens of thousands of soldiers into well-planned fields of fire. Tens of thousands were wounded or killed, but it didn't matter as long as the Russian commander took his objectives. By 6.45, p.m. The commander of the German army in the Zilau area realized the split in his army could not be fixed. The Russians had broken through and there was nothing he could do about it. By nightfall on April 18th, 30,000 Russians were dead at Zilau alone compared to only 12,000 Germans. But the Russians had broken through. Zhukov's reckless charges into the middle of the German front line had finally worked. Cornelius Ryan picks up the story, quote, the situation of the German Ninth Army was now bordering on the catastrophic, yet his commander was not considering pulling back at all. To General Theodor Bussa, retreat, except under orders, was comparable to treason, and Hitler's orders were to stand and fight to the very last. Zhukov's tanks, storming on after their breakthrough on Zilau Heights, had ripped a gash in the army's northern flank, and now the first Bielorussians were charging at breakneck speed towards Berlin. The near absence of communications made it impossible for Bussa to assess the extent of the breakthrough. He did not even know if counterattacks could close the tail in his lines. His best information was that Zhukov's tanks were already within 25 miles of Berlin's outskirts. Even more alarming was Konyev's blistering drive along the 9th Army's southern flank. The first Ukrainians, now beyond Lubin, were arching back behind the 9th and racing northward for the city. Soon, Bussa's entire command would be cut off. The situation was particularly galling for General Karl Weidling, whose 56 Panzer Corps had absorbed the full brunt of Zhukov's breakthrough on the Zilau Heights. His corps had held off Zhukov for 48 straight hours, inflicting staggering casualties. The demoralized 9th Parachute Division panicked and broke as the Russian tanks, guns blazing, smashed into their lines. Colonel Hans-Oskar Valerman, Wieldling's new artillery commander, who had arrived on the opening day of the Russian offensive, across the Oder, witnessed the route that followed. Everywhere, he said, were soldiers running away like madmen. Even when he drew his pistol, the frantic paratroopers did not halt. He found the division's commander utterly alone and completely disheartened by the flight of his men, trying to hold back whatever there was left to hold back. Eventually, the headlong flight was stopped 
but Goring's much-vaunted paratroopers remained, in Vollerman's words, a threat to the course of the entire battle. One German officer would later describe the Russian attack on April 18th as a series of small encirclements. The Russians were beginning to force us back by applying terrific pressure in a kind of horseshoe-like maneuver, hitting us from both sides and encircling us again and again and again, end quote. Back in Berlin, millions of civilians, their numbers swollen by refugees, tried to maintain some sort of normal existence. They repaired telephone lines, they went to bombed-out offices, and they still attended church services. One historian describes the atmosphere in the city with these words, quote, No one knew precisely what the situation was, but most Berliners now believe the city's days were numbered that its death throes had just begun. And yet, astonishingly, people still went about their business. They were nervous, and it was increasingly difficult to preserve the outward appearance of normality, but everyone still tried. At every stop, milkman Richard Poganowska was besieged with questions. His customers seemed to expect him to know more than anyone else. The usually cheerful Poganowska could not provide any answers. On one street, the portrait of Adolf Hitler still hung in the living room of one Nazi postal official, but even that no longer seemed reassuring to Poganowska. He was happy to see his young friend, 13-year-old Dodo Markvart, waiting patiently for him on a corner in Threidenau. She often rode with him for a block or two, and she helped him measurably to keep up his morale. Now sitting next to his dog, Dodo chatted happily, but Pogalska found it difficult to listen to her this morning. Some newly painted slogans had appeared on the half-demolished walls in the area, and he eyed them without enthusiasm. Berlin will remain German, one announced. Others read, Victory or slavery? Vienna will be German again, and who believes in Hitler believes in victory? At Dodo's usual stop, Poganowska lifted her down from the wagon, and with a little smile she said, until tomorrow, Mr. Milkman, and Poganowska replied, Until tomorrow, Dodo. As he climbed back on the wagon, Richard Poganowska wondered just how many tomorrows there were left for him and Dodo. Pastor Arthur Lechschelt, presiding over a burial service in the cemetery near his wrecked church, did not think the suffering that lay ahead could be any worse than it was right now. It seemed an eternity since his beautiful church had been destroyed. During the past few weeks, so many had been killed in the raids that his parish clerk no longer even registered the deaths. The pastor stood at the edge of a mass grave in which lay the stiff bodies of 40 victims killed during one night's air raid. Only a few persons were present, as he said the funeral service. As he finished, most of them moved away, but one young girl remained behind. She told the pastor that her brother was one of the dead. Then tearfully she said, He belonged to the SS. I don't think he was a member of the church. She hesitated. Will you pray for him? She asked. The pastor nodded. Much as he disagreed with the Nazis and the SS in death, he told her he could not deny the man the word of God. Bowing his head, he said, Lord, do not hide your face from me. My days have gone like a shadow. My life is like nothing before you. My time lies in your hands. On a wall nearby during the night, someone had scrawled the words, Germany is victorious. As the pastor looked up and saw the words, he said, Is this victory? As people waited for news, they hid their anxiety and grim humor. A new greeting swept the city. Total strangers shook hands and urged each other, Bleib Ubrich. Survive. 
Many Berliners took to mocking Joseph Goebbels and his melodramatic speeches. Even with the city almost under the Russian guns, the vast majority of Berlin's industrial concerns were still producing. Shells and ammunition were being rushed to the front as fast as factories in Spandau could make them. Electrical equipment was being turned out at the Siemens plant. Vast quantities of ball bearings and machine tools were being made in factories. Gun barrels and mounts rolled out of the factory at Tegel. Tanks, lorries, and self-propelled guns rumbled off the assembly lines at Alket. And as fast as tanks were repaired at the Krupp plant in Tempelhof, workers delivered them directly to the army. So great was the urgency that the management had even asked foreign workers to volunteer as emergency drivers. End quote. Meanwhile, in the South, Soviet General Konyev experienced one of his first problems in his battle for Berlin, a German counterattack. The problem with the counterattack was the commanding officer hadn't bothered to concentrate his forces. Instead, he simply sent troops into the battle a few at a time. Consequently, the concentrated Russians were easily able to fend off the piecemeal German attacks. After that, there was little real resistance to Konyev's advance. His two massive armored prongs traveled 25 miles from the River Spree in one day. Now, I don't want to give the wrong impression. There are Germans resisting in the area Konyev is operating in. It's just they are not concentrated, and they have few weapons to stop Konyev's tanks. Human beings are dying in these operations every minute, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not making a real difference. Konyev's armies are more annoyed than seriously threatened by the German resistance in the south on April 18th. By nightfall on the same day, large numbers of German forces who had followed Hitler's orders and refused to retreat found themselves surrounded by Russians. If they did not break out, there would be a thousand Stalingrads all over the course of the next few days. For the rest of the battle, confusion and panic were giving more orders to German soldiers than was Hitler. Okay, so now I'm going to summarize what happened on April 18th. First, Zhukov has finally achieved a major breakthrough in the middle of the front line. He's driving on Berlin in a direct line. In the south, Konyev has further broken through German lines and sent two spearheads about 25 miles into German territory. If they go 25 more miles, they will have overrun the extensive underground headquarters for the entire German armed forces. At the same time, Konyev is encountering little opposition. He's more hampered by lack of fuel than he is by Axis resistance. All German counterattacks were ineffective and the Russian advance continued. Thus, night fell on April 18th. By the morning of April 19th, the German 9th Army, the main army defending Berlin, was breaking apart in three smaller groupings, precisely what their commanding officer Bussa had most feared would happen to his troops. Many of the disorganized German troops were fleeing back towards Berlin. That morning, Zukov once again found himself facing the Air Force plumbers and engineers he had easily broken earlier in the battle. Now they broke again, running like cockroaches when a light is suddenly flipped on. That's when the SS Battalion Nordland, which had taken thousands of losses and near constant fighting for the past three months, rolled up on the panic-stricken airmen. These were foreign SS troopers, many from Norway, Finland, Denmark, Belgium, and Sweden. They were men without countries, anti-communist fanatics who had no home. Many of them fought like tigers to the last men. French SS volunteers from the SS Charlemagne unit were some of the only troops to actually infiltrate into Berlin after it was cut off by the Russians, knowing most of them would die in the struggle. 
These were the fascist true believers from across Europe. They were battle-hardened veterans. They had no pity on the cooks and electricians from Goring's disintegrating Luftwaffe. The SS men rallied the fleeing trainees and actually led a successful counterattack. But one pole in a 20-pole bridge isn't strong enough to stop a collapse. And the other units around the SS Nordland were collapsing like Jenga towers. All along the front, the German line collapsed. In the confusion, many Hitler Youth units were left behind and slowly mopped up by the Russians. That's what happened to Willy Feldheim's Hitler Youth unit. Willy and his 100-man strong battle group had engaged the Soviets in heavy combat and fell back to a trench when night came on the 18th. When Willy woke up on the morning of April 19th, he could not believe what he saw. Quote, it was a fantastic, incredible scene, like an old painting of the Napoleonic Wars. The sun was shining, and there were bodies everywhere. Nothing was standing. Houses were in ruins. There were cars wrecked and abandoned, some of them still burning. The worst shock was the dead. They were heaped in piles in a weird tableau with their rifles and Panzerfaust lying beside them. It was lunatic, and then we realized that we were all alone. The Russians had bypassed us, and our fellow Germans had already fled the front line, end quote. Everywhere the Germans were retreating, many, perhaps most, gravitated towards Berlin. Many others were captured or found themselves in small pockets of German troops cut off from both Berlin and other German forces. These pockets were isolated and slowly liquidated. Every hour the German resistance grew weaker while the Soviet side grew stronger. Helmut Altner remembers the collapse of the German line, quote, on the morning of April 19th, we stand in our trench and stare into the night. The dawn comes up slow. Gunfire breaks out abruptly once more right on our trenches. It explodes and whistles, and the splinters strike all around us, humming like bees, deadly bees. The barrage moves on behind us, and we lift our heads a little. Figures are running across the field in front of us. Are they Russians? We cram the belt into the feed and race it through. The salvos bellow out. We remain calm, icy calm, smooth ice. Reinforcements enter our trench from the left. In front of us are fleeing soldiers, followed by Russians. We take our machine gun, I grab my submachine gun, and we move across to our old trench, where everything is ready for battle. Weapons grasp tight until it hurts. Soldiers are running back along the road, coming from all over. Is everything lost already? The Russians are coming up close behind. There's still heavy infantry fire up ahead. It is slowly becoming light, and the sun climbs again as the troops flee backwards. Tanks come racing up the road, and SS jump off and spread out. The fleeing soldiers are stopped and rounded up. Forward march! They're driven back into the front line by the ice-cold SS men, even though some of the fleeing Germans are unarmed. A tank rumbles behind each group, urging them on. Behind us, on the right, a tank stands in the fields and fires, sending its message of death to the other side. Our sergeant stands on the road with his submachine gun and big steel helmet, his legs wide apart, and stops the fleeing soldiers who are still trickling back. Wounded are coming back, but even they are driven forward back into the front. A young SS second lieutenant has driven his vehicle into the roadside ditch and jumps out like a jackrabbit, chasing around retreating soldiers, herding the men together with his pistol in order to drive them back into the front line. Little by little, we are being forced out of our trench system, for the enemy is fighting like the very devil. I now realize that the staff sergeant has been drinking, for he reeks of hard liquor. The battalion commander comes forward and addresses us. Hold on! Just another 24 hours, comrades. 
he says in a moving voice. Hitler has issued an order. Hold on another 24 hours and the great change in the war will come. Reinforcements are rolling forward. Wonder weapons are coming. Guns and tanks are being unloaded in their thousands. Hold on another 24 hours, comrades. Peace with the British. Peace with the Americans. The guns are silent on the Western Front. The Western Army is marching to the support of you brave Eastern Front warriors. Thousands of British and Americans are volunteering to join our ranks to drive out the Bolsheviks. Hundreds of British and American aircraft stand ready to take part in the great battle for Europe. Hold on another 24 hours, my comrades. Churchill is in Berlin negotiating with the Fuhrer. Just hold on a few more hours, my men. We're going to win. The commander's lies convince us to keep fighting. We believe everything we are told. Never, ever will a German believe like that again. End quote. On April 19th, the Nordland SS division attempted to withdraw. When they were ordered to counterattack the Russians, the men did what they could, but the sheer odds were impossible to overcome. The attack failed, and the division's reconnaissance battalion was badly mauled in the savage forest fighting. For the Hitler youth taking part in the attack, it was even worse. They attempted to attack the Soviet tanks, but the Russian armor was too smart. All the stupid Russian soldiers had already been killed. They deliberately pulled their tanks back out of Panzerfaust range and cut the Hitler youth off from other German units by surrounding them. Then the Soviet armor began raining death into the surrounded teenagers, not directly into their ranks, where the trees would offer the teens protection, but rather the Soviets deliberately fired into the treetops themselves and the burst shells peppered the teens with shrapnel while the Russians remained safely out of range. It was just plain murder. It literally rained down death on the teenagers. Antony Beaver picks up the story, quote, the survivors were forced to retreat towards Strasbourg along small roads through the pine woods. Russian infantry followed rapidly along the ditches, with their tanks coming up behind to give them covering fire. The Scandinavian Waffen SS had only infantry weapons and a couple of mortars. A lone German assault gun appeared and attempted to take on the T-34s. It was destroyed immediately. But then, a solitary king tiger appeared from the trees, end quote. That one king tiger panzer took on the oncoming T-34s, one tank against dozens. Few records are left of that small encounter, but a novelist later imagined their little battle with these words, quote, SS squad leader Hank DeCock was running for his life. He hadn't eaten in days, and the tall pines were disorienting. As he and his comrades made their way on isolated dirt roads, artillery and tank panzer fire were constantly hammering the trees in the distance. Hink found himself counting the seconds between the explosions the way he had done as a child when he counted the seconds between the sound of thunder and the strobe-light strike of lightning. The men in his units still had their firearms, but they would be useless against the Russian panzers. Their only hope was escape. Perhaps they can make it to Berlin and re-equip with Panzerfaust in the streets of the Reich's capital. They could destroy countless Russian panzers and then die, surrounded by the burning hulks of their enemy's armor, which would serve them as a sort of monument of remembrance. Periodically, Soviet infantry engaged the rear of Hink's column. Really, a column was too good a word for de Kock's scrambled SS unit. Men and teenagers from other units were interspersed with his own SS troopers. Every time the SS men stopped to engage the Russian infantry, the Soviets brought tanks up to engage the fascist troops. Then there was nothing left for the surviving defenders to do but flee once again because they had no answer to the Soviet armor. That's when Hink 
heard a strange machine-like sound in front of him. It was a sound Hink hadn't heard in months, the streamlined sound of German engineering, and it created a familiar purr to his ears as opposed to the more primitive sounds emanating from Soviet machines. It had to be a German panzer. Sure enough, an enormous king tiger hummed into Hink's view. The panzer's sloped armor and enormous bulk was as beautiful to Hink as an angelic epiphany. He actually bowed slightly as he kept stumbling away from the Russians. Tank! Tank! Hink heard the infantrymen scream as he took a peek behind him to see the Russian foot soldiers falling back behind their own T-34 tanks. That's when the tiger belched, and Hink heard something whistling through the air. It was an 88mm anti-tank shell. It took the turret off the leading T-34 just as easily as a hangman beheads a victim. Then the Tiger reversed around a corner and was out of sight. Two Soviet panzers maneuvered around the flaming hulk that had once been their point tank, and they moved forward. Each panzer had one track in the center of the dirt road and the other in a ditch. That's when an elephant trunk suddenly thrust out of the pines in front of Hink and let loose with another 88mm shell. This one caught the left T-34 on its left track, sending the immobilized tread snaking off into the ditch. The remaining T-34 barked back with its own armament, the Russian crewmen guessing as to the probable location of the Tiger. But as Hink lumbered down the road and turned a corner, he did not hear Russian tank treads churning after him. The Tiger's one-man stand had worked. Dick Cox, ragtag band of SS troopers, and fanatic teenagers would live to fight another day. Within a week, most of these men would be dead or wounded. End quote. Reichstrasse 1, the main road leading west towards Berlin, was in total chaos. One historian describes this scene like this, quote, Hundreds of vehicles were heading westward, often blocked by farm carts full of refugees machine-gunned by Soviet ground-attack aircraft. The sides of the road were lined with moaning wounded who had been abandoned by their comrades because there were so few vehicles left with fuel. Throughout that terrible day, these immobile wounded were repeatedly shot and blown apart by Soviet artillery and ground-attack aircraft. Others were trampled to death as the terrified civilians and soldiers scattered from the roads when Russian planes nose-dived to strafe a clogged road. Then there were the terrible few who were crushed by Soviet tanks either deliberately or as a way to avoid some hazard on a road. No one knows the exact number who were abandoned like this. What is this battle but a film, which simply flashes scene after endless scene of inhuman horror? It's like watching a film that is nothing but climactic murder. First Leatherface torturing an innocent victim, and then Freddy Krueger dismembering a hapless teenager. Now a zombie devouring hospital patients. Then a Lucio Fulci supernatural horror film, wherein talking werewolves are pictured pulling human beings apart. To witness the entirety of this battle is to cut and paste every climax of every gore-drenched horror movie into one weeks-long film of flickering high-definition death. I personally challenge any filmmaker listening to this to make a documentary solely focusing on the pain of war, the total tragedy of war, the grimacing burned faces. In the background, the music must be sobering, totally tragic. The dialogue must be minimal, the voice authoritative and laconic, giving the place in an 
brief description of events, then let the grimacing faces speak, flash the faces of death one after another, flash the burned flesh, the hospital scenes of doctors sweating into the glistening open chest cavities of their patients. I challenge you to do this thing because people have lost their knowledge of pain. Anyway, during their retreat, soldiers who had received no rations for five days broke into houses abandoned by their owners. Some were so exhausted that after eating whatever they could find, they collapsed onto a bed, their uniforms still encrusted with mud from the trenches. They then slept so long that in some cases they awoke only with the arrival of the enemy. One Hitler youth was so exhausted that after a long and deep sleep, he woke with a start to find that a battle had been fought all around him. He had never woken up. And throughout that terrible day of defeat, officers continuously tried to reimpose order at pistol point. A major halted a self-propelled flat gun transporting wounded to the rear. He ordered the driver to take it back towards the enemy. The crew told him that the barrels were shot out and useless. The major still insisted and ordered them to unload the wounded. Some Folkster men nearby shouted, Shoot him! Shoot him! The major backed off. An officer's authority, unless supported by the submachine guns of a police, carried little weight on such a retreat. The chaos on the roads was further increased by rumor and panic. By this time, it was more a wild riot than a retreat. And thus, the whole snaking, writhing line of convulsing wounded, wild-eyed deserters and refugees continued its river-like flow westward into Berlin. And that was the way April 19th passed into history. The next day, April 20th, was Hitler's 56th birthday. It would be a day of hundreds of thousands of indignities and abuses of pain and constant combat. But that's next month's podcast. And that's another one of the books for me. Don't forget to join us next month as we recount the fall of the Greater German Reich in minute street-by-street detail. It's never been done in a podcast before, and we're going to be the first to do it. I look forward to being with you again then. But until then, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.